I'm glad you can be with us today to worship and to come and sit under the Word. And we are today at the climax of the book of Exodus, which might be strange because we're in the middle, uh, but that's pretty typical for Hebrew literature and biblical literature in the Old Testament, is that you'll find the high points in the middle. And if you've been paying attention to, for example, how many chapters of Exodus we've been doing in a week, this will be our shortest section. It's just two chapters today. And I I reflected as I was preparing the sermon that I could have turned these two chapters into at least 13 sermons, Um, but I didn't didn't think we'd want to extend the series quite that long. So we're doing it in one. Um, And we start in Exodus 19, and I want us to read the first nine verses of Exodus 19 together. So if you have your Bibles and you like to have it in front of you or your phones, you can pull them out and you can turn there. It will be on the screen behind me. And I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of the Word. We do this every Sunday to honor the Word of the Lord, to participate together in our worship, um, and just to remind all of us that this is the best thing you're going to hear this morning from me. So Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month, After the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you out on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, so the people will hear me speaking with you, and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray together again. God, I again thank you that we can be here this morning. We ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we look to your word. We ask that you would speak to us and that you would guide us and that this time would be fruitful because your spirit is present and at work among us. And all God's people said, amen. So it's been 50 days since Israel left Egypt and they have finally arrived at Mount Sinai. Way back in Exodus 3, which probably seems almost as long ago to you as it did to them, God had said to Moses, I'll be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I am the one who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. This is when Moses is in front of the burning bush on the same mountain that the people have finally arrived at. And we spend the next 59 chapters of the Bible at the foot of Mount Sinai. The entire rest of the book of Exodus, 22 chapters, the entire book 
of Leviticus, 27 chapters, and the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers before they finally set out towards the promised land are all in this one place. It's a period of 10 months and 20 days. That's how long they stay here receiving the word of the Lord. I'm pretty sure that that level of interest in such a short period of time is unique in all of the scriptures to spend 59 chapters on a period of less than a year. And, and there's good reason for it. At Sinai, the Israelites are forming their unique covenant relationship with the God who has delivered them from Egypt. Um, here, it seems that God is beginning to fix the problem of Genesis chapter 3. So if you've been reading the story from the beginning, God creates the earth and he's, he dwells with Adam and Eve. He dwells with his people in Eden, in a mountaintop paradise where heaven and earth meet. But in Genesis 3, it all goes wrong, and Adam and Eve are exiled from that mountaintop paradise and from the presence of God. And here, at Mount Sinai, at another mountain, God comes to again dwell with his people. That's why they spend so long here, both in terms of their journey, spending it all in one place so far, and also in terms of the scriptures, spending so many chapters here. Because it's the beginning of the movement towards a restored Eden, a restored communion between God and his people. And so we're going to walk through Exodus 19 and 20 today, and we're going to do it in three sections. We had a three-point sermon this morning, um, each one narrower than the last. We've got to start by talking about covenant. It's not an idea most of us are super familiar with. If you hear about it at all, it's during a wedding, and even then it's hit and miss. So we'll talk about that kind of broad idea of the covenant, and then we're going to narrow it down to this covenant in terms of the goals and framework that is given to us in Exodus 19, and then we're going to narrow it down further to the obligations of this covenant in Exodus chapter 20 that we normally call the Ten Commandments. Um, so that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to start broad and we're going to work our way in because we have, to, we have to be careful to understand what's going on here. It is such a central idea in Scripture, in the whole of Scripture, not just in the story of Exodus. It comes right up to us today, and we'll see that repeatedly as we walk through these three sections. <coughs> so we start with covenant. Um, as I say, chances are it's not a word you use very often. You don't covenant with people frequently, perhaps once in your lifetime, uh, depending on who your pastor or officiant was when you did your wedding. And I find that it's easiest to work up to the idea of covenant by way of other kinds of agreements we make. So we start with the idea of a contract. Now, all of us know what a contract is and sign many contracts over the course of our lifetime. A contract is an agreement governing an exchange. That's all it is. It specifies what I am to give you and what you are to give me. It's based on a mutually beneficial desire. Uh, you can fix my kitchen and I can pay you. So we exchange your skills and building materials for my money and we're both happy with it. Hopefully at the end everything is how we want it to and I've honored my bills and you've honored your job and we're good. Um, a contract does not rely on a relationship. It does not specify behavior outside of the very narrow area that the contract covers, right? I do not need to like the man remodeling my kitchen. I do not need to find them someone that I would go out for a beer with. Um, I may or may not, but it doesn't matter because what I've paid them to do is renovate my kitchen. 
If I'm making a contract with a company, I may never even meet or see the people, the individuals on the other side of that contract. There doesn't need to be that kind of a relationship. Contracts can get incredibly complex as they specify if-thens all the way down into the absurd hypotheticals of insurance papers and stuff like this where they're being very, very detail-oriented, but they're still governing an exchange. I'm going to give you this money on a regular basis, and if these things happen, you will do this, right? Um, so that's what a contract is. That's kind of your lowest level agreement. Next, we might consider a treaty. So a treaty is typically an agreement between two sovereign parties governing how they will treat one another. Now, I know those are big words, but what we're talking about is like two nations, right? Sovereign parties, each in their own, governing their own area, and they come together and they sign a treaty that says, these are my borders and these are your borders and we won't cross them and we won't fight, for example, right? If it's a peace treaty. Maybe it's a, more, maybe it's a deeper treaty, a treaty of an alliance, where not only will I honor your borders and you will honor mine, but if you get into trouble, if somebody else comes and attacks you, then I will help you and vice versa, or we'll exchange resources, or so on and so forth. Treaties, unlike a contract, do involve a relationship. Now, how much of a relationship they involve depends on the treaty. So it may be uh, we're going to leave each other alone regularly and over a long period of time. It may involve a deeper kind of relationship than that. It takes two communities or two entities that exist independently of each other and decides what they're going to do with, for, or not against one another. So you've got a contract, governed in exchange, you've got a treaty which governs the relationship between two independent bodies. What about a covenant? A covenant, like a treaty, does govern a relationship. However, a covenant does not define the relationship between two pre-existing and independent bodies but it defines the relationship within a newly born community. A covenant creates a treaty, a contract only governs. So when you're married, you have created a family. There is a new thing because of the covenant of marriage. Because covenants create, they also affect identity. When I get married, I am now a husband and I have the potential to be a father. And those are core pieces of my identity, more core than almost anything else in my life, almost. Because whenever you get into a covenant relationship, you redefine who you are in light of that relationship with other people. And the, the intimacy, the closeness, the import of that determines where that identity piece comes in terms of how central it is in your life. So it is more important that I am a husband and a father than that I am a pastor, right? Um, it's important that I'm a pastor too, but in, in a hierarchy, I know which one comes first. And that's true for all of us in our careers. A covenant, unlike treaties and, and contracts, is based primarily on gratitude. So a covenant is born out of things that are already given. Now, depending on your culture, if we're going to talk about marriage, in our culture, the marriage covenant is based on the relationship between the, the engaged couple that pre-exists the marriage. They've already given love to one another. In other cultures where there's arranged marriages, the, the gift that is already given is the agreement of the parents and usually gifts 
actual physical monetary gifts of some kind. And so there's, there's some kind of something given before the covenant comes into being, whereas treaties and contracts, usually it's afterwards. I'll do this, you do this, we mutually agree to this. And because a covenant is based on something already given and therefore on gratitude, it is an agreement whose obligations are a call to faithfulness rather than the thing that the covenant relies on. So in a contract, a contract relies on us doing what we have agreed to do. A treaty relies on us doing what we have agreed to do. A covenant relies on what we've already done and calls us to continue to be faithful to who we have decided to be to one another because it's an identity and relationship thing that has created a new community. So you can see how a covenant is much more serious and much deeper than either a contract or a treaty. Now, these ideas are going to keep coming up as we walk through this passage. But it's very important for us to understand these things because if we don't, we won't see what God is up to here or how big a deal it is. For God to enter into a covenant with a group of people is incredible. Because for God to do this is for him to, to stoop down, to come low, to obligate himself to a group of lost former slaves in the wilderness. It's for him to agree that he will be their God and they will be his people. And he will act in faithfulness to that identity and to that agreement, no matter how much it costs him. And we will see that it costs him the life of his son. That is born out of the covenant. It's the same action we see in God becoming human in the person of Jesus Christ, that stooping down, that bending low, that humbling himself for our sake is evident in the fact that he makes a covenant with us at all. And what is this covenant? It says in Exodus chapter 19, when we read this passage, he says, if you will keep the covenant, then Israel will be three things. He will be, they will be his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests or his priestly kingdom, and his holy nation. The covenant that's given here follows exactly the pattern we're talking about. First, God says, you've seen what I did for you. Here's the gift. Here's the gratitude upon which this is based. I carried you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. It's an incredible picture, and you're meant to have that in mind whenever you find eagles later on in the, in the, in the Bible. When you hear about eagles, when you hear about what Aressa read for us this morning, that we will, we will soar on eagles' wings. Why is that? That's a metaphor born here in this passage, right? This is what God has done for you. Now, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then you will be these three things. You'll be redefined. You'll have a new identity and a new relationship and a new community. Remember when I said I could turn this into 13 sermons? Well, ten of them are the Ten Commandments. Three of them are these new titles that Israel is given because these are incredibly powerful titles. To be a treasured possession, to be a priestly kingdom, and to be a holy nation. And so briefly, to take these one at a time, Israel will be God's treasured possession. Think about those words. God isn't saying that they're a thing rather than people, and that's very clear from the next two titles they get. What he's saying is, you will be wholly mine. You will belong to me. But how you belong to me is as one who is treasured. 
one who is cherished, one who is cared for and honored. I don't know what you have that you would consider a treasured possession, but think about that for a minute, where you're excited to show people and you're, you, you enjoy that thing and it brings you pleasure and joy and you care for it, right? Almost lovingly. And maybe your spouse is a little bit like, seriously? <laughs> because it's just a thing, right? Um, maybe that's a person in your life, not because they're your possession, but because that's what you treasure and that's what you cherish. This is who we are to God. And I was going to leave it to the end, but I don't think I can. We read from 1 Peter, where 1 Peter talks to the church. I read this at the beginning of announcements. And he calls the church exactly these three things. You are God's chosen people, his priestly kingdom, and his holy nation. The church is always Israel-shaped. We're shaped by the same God with the same goals and a deepening of the same covenant. That's who we are. We are God's treasured possession. We are also his priestly kingdom, a kingdom of people who worship God and lead others in doing the same, who speak the word of God and stand in the place of intercession or mediation. It means you stand in the middle. That's a priest's job to come before God on behalf of the people and to come before the people on behalf of God. That's who we are. That's who we are called to be, and that's who Israel is called to be. And lastly, a holy nation. That is, a community of people who share in one of God's key attributes of being holy, which is set apart for life. That's what holiness means, set apart for life. This comes through in the call of Israel again and again in that God has called them for the nations. He has blessed them to be a blessing to all of the peoples around them. He has called them to be a witness, to testify to his greatness and his goodness. And it comes through in all of the New Testament for us as well. That same passage in Peter, and we read it, where he says, you are these three things. He concludes that by saying, to proclaim or in order to proclaim the praises of God. Right? That's what it means to be a holy nation. So they're given a place with God as a treasured possession. They're given a place in between as priests. And they're given a place before the world as a holy nation. And the covenant sets Israel apart as this special people. It does the same for us. And that brings us to the Ten Commandments. That brings us to the obligations of the covenant. What will it mean for Israel to be a treasured possession, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation? What will that actually look like? That's the next kind of question. And so when we turn to the Ten Commandments, what we find is God outlining what it will mean for Israel to be his people. It's the only divine speech in Exodus directed at every adult Israelite. It's the only one. The ten words, as they are literally called, we call them the Ten Commandments, but in Hebrew they're called the Ten Words, um, are not meant as laws. They're not designed to govern all of life. They're not exhaustive. Um, they're meant more as a charter of freedoms to be embraced and celebrated. They're deliberately shaped as general principles, worded as broadly as possible, in order to establish a value system. And they're targeted at the values that Israel will need to live out in order to set themselves apart from the nations around them and be a blessing. That's what they're for. 
They do act as the basis for the system of law that comes about in Israel, but they are not that themselves. They're selective, they're directed at key issues that are culturally specific, but also very broad and continue to be applicable today. They're not focused on salvation. The issue here is not obey these things and you will be saved. They're already saved. Salvation came first. First, God rescued them from Egypt. Then, he told them how to be his people. Again, the same thing is true for us. First, Jesus dies on the cross. Then, he calls us to be his people and to live in obedience. I'd love to go over the Ten Commandments one at a time. That's the other ten sermons that you could do for 13. I'm going to read them and then talk about them more generally, just to give you some bigger picture thoughts on on what do these mean and how should they be read. So this is Exodus chapter 20. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Starts in the same place. He's always reminding them of the grace and the gift first. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your mother and father, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, neighbor's wife, manservant or maidservant, ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's the Ten Commandments. A couple general observations. There is a reputation around these ten words of being very negative. Don't do this, don't do that. When you hear people talking about how the Bible is a bunch of rules that tell you what not to do, they're usually thinking of the Ten Commandments because most people haven't read many of the other laws in Scripture. Um, There's lots of them. There's 611 in total, and we'll talk about that next week. Um, But most people have some exposure to the Ten Commandments, and it's like, ugh, all these rules. Um, We need to modify that picture in two directions. First of all, the Ten Commandments are unified by their heading, the character of Yahweh as the one who has seen the suffering and heard the cries and knows the misery of the powerless, vulnerable victims in Egypt, and calls us into a covenant in order to protect them. God is the one who is ever faithful, ever good, ever compassionate, always mighty, the awesome deliverer of the weak. And the commandments are meant to reflect that same heart. Secondly, The negative formulation that really is there. People aren't wrong when they hear the don't do this, don't do that. Eight out of the ten commandments are don'ts. They they say not to do something. Um, But negative commandments are given in order to open life up rather than close it down. When you say to Adam and Eve in the garden, you can freely eat from any tree in the garden except this one. 
That's a, that's a command of openness. There's one tree you don't touch. Every other tree is fair game. The difference between a negative command and a positive command is a negative command sets a small area out of bounds and leaves everything else free, whereas a positive command says, this you must do. And if you get enough positive commands, you don't have any freedom anymore because all of your time and energy and effort is used in keeping all of those positive commands, right? If there were, you know, a hundred things you had to do every day, that'd be all you could do. End of story, right? So negative commandments are meant to open up life. And these negative commandments show us that God's primary concern is to protect the human community from behaviors that would destroy it. It fits very well within the narrative context. God has already given them this amazing gift of freedom. They're free. They've been redeemed. They have an amazing calling to walk in the presence of God as his treasured possession, royal priesthood, and holy nation. And now God is protecting and defining that community that he's created. By adhering to the values in these Ten Commandments, they will be able to create a society that is almost the polar opposite of the one they just left in Egypt and very different than all of the ones that will exist around them for hundreds of years. Now, there are two positive commandments here, and they remind us that the boundaries of the community about protection are balanced by the central values of the community, which focus on family and rhythm. There's a Sabbath commandment and the commandment to honor your mother and father. And the picture that I really like is of a playground. If you've got a playground next to the wilderness that you know is full of bears and wolves and, and things that will hurt your children, you're not going to feel very safe. But if you've got a huge play area with a playground in the middle and fences around the outside, then you can let them roam free. You can let them enjoy, and it can be free. And it's that same idea here. A couple other observations are helpful within looking at the Ten Commandments. Um, they work together as a whole. They join the love of God to the love of neighbor. Um, you can't have one without the other. So it's often observed that the first four commandments are very much focused on how we treat the Lord and the things that he has made holy. Then the next six commandments, starting with honor your mother and father, and then moving on to all the don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, and so on, focus on how we treat people, how we treat our neighbors. And these two things are always held together in Scripture. And the picture they give is a very countercultural one, then and today. So, first of all, it's monotheistic. That is, there is one God. All of the cultures around have many gods. And if a new God comes along, you just welcome them in. They worship them too. And the kind of prevalent atmosphere was worship as many gods as you have time and resources for, because why not have as many of them on your side as you can? right? Better to have more allies than few. Better to have more gods happy with you than not. So just bring them all in. And, uh, and Israel comes along and, and God's commandment is, you shall worship only the Lord. You shall have no other gods. Again, there's deep freedom here. In a community with a hundred gods, where any one of them might be mad at you for any reason, and you don't know why, when life goes wrong, you're left scrambling trying to figure out what you need to do to fix it. Which God did I offend today? Which God do I need to appease to make this go right again? In a, in a community 
where the Lord is God and only Him, and He has revealed His character to you and made plain what He desires from you, you don't have to wonder. And you don't have to scramble either because God isn't setting up a system where He's capricious and and demanding your service in order to make Him happy. Before Israel does anything, God rescues them. That's the basis of this. So it's monotheistic. There's one God instead of many. It's imageless. There's no idols. Um, We live in a culture that has the fruit of this today, where we don't have idols. But again, the prevailing atmosphere of the day was that you built an image of the God you worshipped in order to attract them. So if the image was opulent enough and beautiful enough and you'd spent enough time in it and then you would, build it, you would build this temple, and on the sixth day, you would install the image into the temple, and you would have a festival, and you would party, and you would dance, and you were enticing the god to come and take up residence in this idol, because then, once he had done that, then, then you could go in and ask for stuff, and you could worship him, and you could appease him, and you could do all of these kind of things. Um, here, there's no images. There's none of this appeasing and enticing and trying to attract God with your opulence. God came first. It also affirms who we are. You go back to Genesis again, and who are we? We are made in the image of God. We are the image of God. We don't need to cast an idol. We don't need to build a wooden or stone or gold or silver statue to look like Him. That's our job. That's why we're a kingdom of priests. We're the ones in whom God dwells. We talk about the Holy Spirit coming among us. Other things that are countercultural here, honor for both the mother and the father, not just the father. All the cultures around them, and many still today, it's just about the dad. He's the patriarch, it's his name on the family, he's the one you have to honor and respect. But here it's honor your mother, your father, and your mother. It's both equally, side by side. They both matter. Severe limitations on killing, on marital faithfulness, on theft, on honesty. Um, Typically, these laws in other cultures are set up where murder is bad, but murder is only defined as killing one of your own people. Anyone else is fair game, right? Theft is bad, but theft is only when you steal from your own people. If you steal from somebody else, it's not theft. There's a different name for that. It's a, you know, it's a war prize or a badge of honor or pick your other name for it, right? Um, the truth is, though, that these are equally countercultural today. They profoundly challenge our narcissistic way of life. They remind us of the importance of community, of the well-being of all of our society members, independent of class, right? So again, you've got this idea of Sabbath here, and God is very specific. You don't do any work, and not just you, your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, your animals, the foreigner living among you, none of them will work on the Sabbath. Everybody deserves a time and place of rest. And we are quickly losing that lesson today. All of this together means we need to avoid a legalistic interpretation of these 10 words. They're principles, not laws. They define the center and they define the boundaries in which the community of God flourishes. They're based on this delivering and compassionate God who walks with us, and they point us to perfect moral behavior, but they also point us far beyond it to the character and ways of God. 
They point us to what it means to be a witness. They're worth reflecting on. They are reflected in many places in the New Testament. One great place to go is in the New Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to where Jesus reflects and riffs a little bit on the Ten Commandments. There's other places too. James is another, the whole book of James is another great place to go where these things are picked up. Now Exodus 20 concludes with a narrative about the fear of the people. They see, I haven't talked about this yet, but in the midst of the covenant being given, God comes before his people on the mountain. And he comes in dark cloud and thunder and lightning and the earth shakes and there's a trumpet blast so loud that the people tremble and they stay at a distance. And they say to Moses, speak to us yourself, we'll listen. Don't have God speak to us or we'll die. And they're afraid. And there's a kind of implicit question in the narrative, which is how can you be a nation of priests coming before God on behalf of the people and going to the people on behalf of God if you won't come before God? And what follows in Exodus, and we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, are you begin to see ways of mediation coming in. So first there's the tabernacle, a place for God to dwell with his people but also separate. And then there's the priesthood, a group of people who stand, who to do this for the Israelites, who stand with Moses before God on behalf of the whole nation. And the kind of picture you get is that we get to take a step forward in Exodus, but we're not there yet. We're not yet to the place where God can dwell fully among his people as he longs to and as he wants to, because their fear gets in the way. The author of Hebrews picks up on this. I hope you're catching how much of Exodus is all over the New Testament, right? So Peter picks up on this definition of the people and he applies it to the church. Hebrews picks up on this experience at the mountain and applies it to us as well. This is Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18. You, speaking to the church, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. You have come, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. What a picture of the church, the church as Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where thousands upon thousands of angels gather together in joyful assembly, and where our names are written in heaven. He goes on, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Again, what a picture. We're going to celebrate communion today, and when Jesus takes the cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And just as the people of Israel are defined here at the Sinai covenant, we are defined in the covenant that Jesus Christ gives us, the new covenant in his blood. Hebrews goes on. 
See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, speaking again of Exodus. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Again, what a picture. And he's drawing it all from Exodus. Our God is a consuming fire. He comes to the mountain and he rests there in fire. And part of what the book of Hebrews is on about over and over again is to tell us how much we have in common with the people of Israel and the book of Exodus, but also what has changed. Because what has changed at this table in contrast to the mountain in Sinai is that we are now in a place where nothing comes between. We don't need a tabernacle. We don't need a priesthood. We don't need lambs and goats and oxen and their blood sprinkled on us so that we can be purified and sanctified and brought into the presence of the Lord. Jesus has accomplished all of those things once and for all on the cross. And so the new covenant in his blood is not new in terms of who we are. We are still the treasured possession, the royal priesthood and the holy nation. It's not new in terms of God's plan. God's plan has always been to dwell again with his people. He's longed for that from the moment that he had to remove Adam and Eve from the garden. What's new is that Jesus has accomplished for us what no one else could have done by opening the way for us to actually come into the presence of God. Now, even there, Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly. We look forward to the day when Jesus returns and we will see God face to face. But in the meantime, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells in our hearts. That's why we are the temple and the church of God. Not the building, not, not just timbers, but all of God's people across time and space who follow Jesus in faith are the church of God, called to exactly the same things, to be God's treasured possession. And I hope that word, that you are a treasured possession, a chosen people of God, both warms your heart and gives you great confidence as you go out each day. And a royal priesthood, we have a calling to stand before God on behalf of our world and to stand before our world on behalf of God, both interceding in prayer and worship and going out to proclaim the glory of God. And we are a holy nation called to be set apart for life to be life-giving, to be good, to be different, not in a way where other people feel shamed or feel judged or feel, I mean, they might feel judged because they see the difference, but not because we've judged, but because we've blessed and because we've blessed in such a way that they see the emptiness of life without God. That is who we are to be still today. And we celebrate this on the first Sunday of every month, with the Lord's table. 
This is what we're doing when we come here. Every time God gives a covenant, He's given a sign to go with it. So the covenant with Abraham is given with the sign of circumcision. The covenant at Sinai is given with the sign of the Sabbath. The covenant in Jesus' blood is given with the sign of the Lord's Supper. And we do this together regularly, and part of what we're doing when we come to this table is exactly the same thing God is doing when He comes to speak to them on the mountain. First, He reminds them of where they've come, then He reminds them of who they are, and then He reminds them of where they're going. Who are we? We are the people that Jesus died for. He's already saved us. He's already rescued us. He did all that work. While we were still enemies, Jesus gave His body and blood for us. (coughs) Who are we now? We are his treasured possession, his royal priesthood, and his holy nation with all that that entails. And where are we headed? We're headed into the fullness of his presence. And when we gather here, Paul says we do this and we celebrate this, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. This too is that act of proclamation. And so we're going to celebrate this together today as the new covenant in his blood. And I'm going to call our communion servers forward now.